Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a great episode for you guys today. We've got Pat Long, legendary sports car driver, Porsche factory driver. He's coming to come on the podcast and talk about his history, his career, his show, and everything that he's going on. I'm I'm really, really excited yeah, about that. He's, he's massively accomplished. Yeah, he is. He, uh, this year, he's going to look to compete in his 16th consecutive 24-hour of Le Mans. Now, wow. I can get it. Like, he's done so much. And we're going to get into a little bit. I don't want to just go through the litany laundry <laughs> list of everything this guy has accomplished, but it, it, it is really good. And he's actually, a um, he's become a foundation of the Porsche culture, really, especially right. the old air-cooled culture with everything that he's been doing and all the vintage cars that he gets to drive. And, you know, he went from meeting his heroes really, really fast. So we're going to start <laughs> uh, start hearing that story later on. We also have uh, Joel Fetter from Motor Authority is here after the interview with some news. Yes. So that's that's what's coming up today. Excellent. Before we get into Patrick Long, though, let's take a moment to, to, mock, to talk about our sponsor, Renline. We've partnered with them to offer an awesome discount. I actually just received my floorboards, Chris. And with all their products, they're extremely high quality and beautifully machined. And that quality really is illustrated by the fact that they guarantee... Wait, you got floorboards now? Yep. What color are they? They're black. Okay. Yeah, well, at least don't worry. That. I was waiting for you to like comment on something there. Yeah, I just, I'm glad they're not silver. Yes, I am too. No, it'll be tasteful and subdued, but still beautiful as they are and uh what i was about to say is they uh guarantee every single product that they what was create. wrong with your floorboard that was in the car already it's wooden cracked yeah but why didn't you just get the wooden one to replace it with because it's not as cool okay Continue. what no I... <laughs> you can get runline performance parts for any of your european cars including of course porsche they've been in business for the past 20 years and have developed over six thousand products to meet the needs of your porsche enthusiasts my favorite part is that it's they're here they're an American company. Exactly. That is yep. awesome. They're not just another distributor. All of their parts are designed and engineered in-house right there in Vermont. So be sure to check them out on renline.com and use the code OVERCREST to get 5% off your next order along with free shipping on orders over 250 bucks. All right. We're going to be right back with Patrick Long. We're going to get right into it because I have a feeling this is going to be awesome. all we have time for today other than news. So we're going to get right into <laughs> it. We'll be right back. Mr. Patrick Long, how's it going? Good, man. How are you? Very, very good. Uh, how's everything going with the show planning over there? Yeah, it's mission control. I'm staring at <laughs> a, a big piece of plywood, two whiteboards, and a laptop screen, and I got my feet up on the desk, so this is actually a nice little break. Yeah, I know how that goes. I remember making, God, Jake and I made sandwich boards we've made oh, yeah. for the show that we did here, and there's all kinds of stuff that people have no idea what goes on behind the scenes and how much work it it truly is. Um, I want to get into into Luft, but I want to do that later. So first, I want to get into a little bit of, well, first of all, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. <laughs> I, re I really appreciate it. Yeah, we've been talking about it for a few months, and uh, thanks for having me. Uh, I admit that I've uh, been living under a rock these last few months, so uh, we'll see if I can come out of the haze and have a little bit of energy for you guys. That sounds good. Well, it's going to be tough to meet the amount of energy that Jake usually has during the podcast, but I'm we'll, toning uh, it down right now. <laughs> you could you could try. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, where you come from. So I've seen some of your interviews and uh, you know listened to some of the other podcasts that you've been on and, and did some research. But what I didn't get the feel of is where you came from and what how Patrick Long became Patrick Long. So I want to talk about a little bit about where did you grow up? Where where did you start? Yeah, I mean, grew up in Southern California. Um, Agora Hills is kind of suburbia of LA, about an hour uh, north, kind of on the cusp of, of the valley in Ventura County. Um, so just over the hill 
from Malibu, and I sound like I'm on uh, an episode of The Californians <laughs> on Saturday Night Live. So, uh, an hour an hour north of LA, uh, in the direction up the 101 towards uh, Ventura County, and heading towards Monterey. But um, is that the yeah, area that was totally on fire? <laughs> yes. Yes, okay. they literally started um, in in Simi Valley and blew straight through Agora Hills. Oak Park is actually the high school I went to, and uh, it, it just headed west through the canyons. And um, yeah, I tried to put it into perspective. The first time I drove through town um, up the 101, it's just it's on both sides, and you could see that it just it just scorched straight through. And when you drive into the canyons, I mean, a lot of the Santa Monica Mountains, where we go up and drive the Snake Mall and Stunt Road, uh, Latigo, all just a complete blaze. And I tried to tell people this this wasn't really a fire. It was more like a tornado of flames. It, it's really how quick it came through. I remember seeing a video of an actual tornado of flames from right. yeah. that fire. It was, it was pretty crazy. So what was car culture like for you at that time when you were growing up? You know, kind of, you know, six, seven, eight years old. What were you into back then? Um, I grew up on the short tracks um, in Southern California watching uh, Speedway motorcycles, you know, no brakes, hanging it out on an eighth mile at Ascot, um, Ventura, sprint cars, midgets, open wheel. Um, I went to my first NASCAR race at six years old. My dad and I and my grandfather and uh, my dad's little brother and my uncle, we flew to Bristol to get the real experience of NASCAR in Tennessee as, as Southern California sort of construction family that that surfed and went to the races on the weekend so right. uh, anything with wheels i was into you know the pomona swap lead it was all about uh southern california car culture but nobody in my family really did uh motorsport or cars as a as a, a living um but there were plenty of of all-terrain vehicles and uh, hot rods and, and everything in between not a lot of european car culture in in my dna but um, my grandfather uh, had a, a flying a gas station just down the road from rod emery's uh, grandfather who had Valley Custom, I believe is the name. And so, did they the know Burbank each other? Is that, do you think they they uh, hung out? And... Yeah, well, sure. I mean, literally less than a mile away. So, um, with with that the heyday of hot rodding and and post World War II, I know they crossed paths, but we haven't we haven't spent enough time um, really researching it. Uh, neither one of them are around any longer, but. Um, yeah, Rod's been a, an awesome friend. Sidebar conversation, but Rod's been a, a great friend. I met Rod in 2005. He was a co-owner of a race car that I drove. So, yeah, the, the air-cooled uh, relationships sort of have, have all come full circle. But back to uh, my upbringing, it was really just being around uh, a lot of, of racing and, and a lot of vintage. My, my grandfather and, and my uncle were the real car guys in the family, and they would drag me along to all kinds of um, vintage hot rod shows, uh, open wheel on the on the racetrack, and and we had a, a local car show that we that I used to live for as a kid in Westlake, California, and it was literally in a strip mall uh, annually. So uh, that, there's all part of that DNA and heritage and and nature nurture involved in in where I sit, spending my time today. So it's crazy whenever I talk to somebody that grew up in California with California car culture. There's always some sort of story like. Like, uh, like you told, like somebody knew somebody or it, it seems like, is that still possible? Is that how it feels today? Do is you it think? still a small world? Is it still a small <laughs> world? Like it was back then? It is. Yeah. I mean, SoCal, I, I, I wish I was more a student of, of how motorsport and, and car culture in, in California. I mean, obviously we, we know the, the storylines of Porsche and hot rodding in Southern California, but from the design aspect, 
I mean, this day and age, uh, I've lived uh, in, in quite a few areas uh, around the world. And in this day and age, I couldn't imagine, um, you know, not being in L.A. for the most ridiculous parts of, of the cost of living and um, the distance to most of my, my day job as a racing driver. It's kind of insane to live in California and Los Angeles, but um, there's just something going on every single weekend. And uh, that part of it is, is a lot of fun. I have kids of my own now and uh, yeah it's just fun to to be overloaded and overwhelmed with uh, car culture and, and events i was just going to ask if you ever feel overwhelmed <laughs> you know does it ever feel <laughs> yeah. like there's too much totally. like it's just like you, oh, someone's sure. holding your mouth open and they're just pouring the car culture <laughs> in yes it is completely like that and i and i go i ebb and flow i i have to take breaks at times and and just ignore social feeds and and not feel like oh man i mean it's like this coming weekend you know there's a there's a Porsche show Saturday. There's a Porsche show Sunday. There's there's three shows on any given Saturday. And, and funny enough, um, that wasn't always the case. I mean, there's always been sort of periodic uh, events, but it wasn't this every weekend, three or four cars and coffees um, all over the place. And and uh, I have to say, uh, if I leave the humility out of it, I think that um, that was that was kind of what I was after um, when I started Look was is that there really wasn't much other than the kind of original OG cars and coffee in Irvine. And that was over an hour's drive. And, and I loved that it was the same crowd week in and week out, but it was very eclectic. And, and the great thing was, is it was a constant, but um, I was, I was looking for something different and I was looking for something in West LA. I mean, I spent most of my social time in Venice, uh, Santa Monica, Manhattan beach, and you couldn't find any car car events uh, on a regular basis there was annual stuff but there wasn't really the coffee shop pop-up uh, version of right. what there is now well i think you've got you know as much as we complain about how social media is ruining the world it's also it has huge benefits in terms of creating stuff like that so because you used to have to be you had to call people right you had to pick up the phone <laughs> and be like hey bob can you get a hold of john and billy we're gonna go down and hang out at the at the drive-in can we all get together and head down there or, or better yet you'd get a flyer in your mailbox chris right yeah, yeah. or on your car because yeah. you parked at kmart and wanted yeah. to you know whatever um so how did you get started with the with the carding and everything which i'm imagining that's kind of where it started for you the competitive part of it yeah um late 50s early 60s um my grandpa has a flying a gas station and carding was really taking off in, in southern california at that time and he bought a bug with a mac 10 on it and uh used to take his two boys out to uh, run it on, on the five and the, the five and the one thirty four wasn't open. And the story I'm told is they used to run it uh, on the freeway before it was actually finished. And so um, that sounds fast awesome. Forward, <laughs> yeah. Fast forward 30 years, you know, that go-kart got sold. My uncle raced motocross at an amateur level. My dad wasn't much of a, a rider or a driver um, other than his childhood, but my dad was a surfer and he ran into the Jim Hall school of karting, which was really one of the first karting schools um, in, in Oxnard, California. And, and he was just at a surf spot and he came back and called his little brother who was the total gearhead of the family and said, dude, karting lives. Um, there, there is legit racing and we got to check this out. So long story short, I was about five, six years old at that point and total motor crazy from before I can remember. And that was it. Um, they got a couple carts and I used to run on their lunch break when they were at a practice or a race, the, the organizers at Jim Hall's track um, used to let me run around in a three and a half horsepower homemade go-kart that they bought at a garage sale. And so 
in those days, there was no baby carts or cadet carts. There weren't kids racing at four years old, so you had to wait till you were eight. And uh, so I had to get the grades at school, and I had a, a crappy old uh, dirt cart that was converted to run road course, but it was actually an offset chassis. So I didn't start with the best equipment, but I guess uh, I figured out how to get it around the track, and it was really just you know, my first day racing was my dad's last day racing because he quickly realized that I was into it and he wasn't going to babysit two go-karts in two different classes. So it was really just a, a local hobby um, for my family and for, for me. And it was really the only way my dad could get me to focus in school or, or do anything around the house was to put the go-kart on the wall until I got my act together. So um, it just steamrolled and, and, and were you good right away? Over. I mean, when you were, when you would get in a cart was, were people like, well, this he's good. Or did you just have like a, a dedication to just do it right away? Was it, or was it a mix of both? Um, yeah, I was, I was quick, but I, I couldn't race. Um, I, I could qualify as quick as anybody. Um, but if you put a bumper to me or I had to come from behind, I, I didn't have the racecraft, but I had good natural speed and, you know, I, I was able to win a few big races pretty early on, but I, I had a lot to learn. And, and SoCal was a, a, a mecca of karting um, in this is, sorry, I'm dating myself. This is sort of early 90s, Southern California, when, when everybody went and met up one place uh, a year in, in the U.S., the, the, the SoCal uh, guys came out with the majority of the national championships. So it was a lot of competition from eight years old up and uh, definitely had uh, a lot to learn. So where did your race craft that you were lacking come from? How did you get it? Ah, uh, man, that's a good question. There was a, there was a part of me um, that was almost just mental maturity um, and bravery, probably maybe four or five years into my karting where a light bulb went off and, I thought, all right, I get this. And, and that was when I moved up a category to kind of going from the oldest in the category to the youngest and looking up at these 15-year-old guys with beards and mustaches and, and <laughs> hair under their arms and thinking, I got to get I gotta get with it. But uh, the real the real uh, craft was, was when I finally left home and, and started racing abroad. And, and that's where it hit me in the face at about 14. When I first went over and raced in Europe, I, I realized there was a whole nother discipline there was a whole nother cadence to motorsport and how serious it was over there i mean it was rolling green hills and and restaurants overlooking the racetrack and live eurosport and the grip was just intense the engines were faster and it was just fleek and sexy and it was everything that everybody had always come back after a summer trip and said dude you got to go see karting in europe and i think that there was the romantic side of it, but it was also hyper competitive, and it was it was definitely that exposure and that osmosis that I don't think if I had hadn't the opportunity to go to Europe, I don't think I would have made a career in motorsport because I there was just so many good kids and they. they like who are you racing against at the time? I'm sure there's probably some names we'll recognize. Uh, yeah, Fernando Alonso, Jensen Button, Lewis Hamilton. Wow. They were all there, uh, all in the same same era. Uh, you name it, Anthony Davidson, all, all the way down. And those um, guys, I mean, in Europe, there it's not like you start when you're eight. You start when you're like, when you can walk. I mean, it's a little <laughs> yeah. bit different than culture here. Yeah, yeah, I know it's soccer um, or racing, uh, maybe a little bit of cycling. But yeah, racing is life over there. I remember my first world championship at 14. I started next to Alonzo. I think we were sixth and seventh on the grid and I crashed and he went on and won, won the junior world championships. And we were the same age. We born in the same year. So we raced all the way up through karting and the guy was always just super, super 
uh, smooth, fast, and and quiet out of the car. And uh, yeah, it's crazy to to think of all of the, the the guys these days that have come through Europe. But uh, watching watching Formula One this last weekend, I realized that I'm getting old because there's a crop <laughs> of kids now that I've I've never heard of or followed, and uh, they're insane. I mean, watching yeah, they're coming Charles out. Of, it's Lord like all of a sudden they come insane. out of nowhere. It's like, whoa, who's yeah. this kid? Where'd he come from? He's amazing. Yeah. And the evolution now is so much different. I mean, it was serious back 20 years ago when I was doing it, 30 years ago when I was doing it. But um, now it's, it's progressed even more. I mean, when you look at uh, Max Verstappen and the product that he is at 18 years old, I mean, that that was, in in my time, Jensen Button was the youngest that we had seen really excel at, in Formula One of my generation at 20 years old. That was like unheard of to put a 20 year old um, who only had a couple of years of car experience into a formula one car. But um, this day and age, that's, that's kind of late. Right. Mm. So that kind of brings me to my next question. Your, your evolution into professional racing was kind of atypical of what we see today. Um, what was, uh, what were some of the challenges you faced in making the leap to being a professional driver? Uh, other than the, other than getting the job done on the track, it was um, definitely financial. I think that, when I look at motorsport and, and the dream of being a racing driver, um, I, I have to say it's, it's everything it, that it, I could ever hope it was going to be. But to get there, um, you, you spend a lot of years just thinking, how am I going to raise the money? What, who am I going to pitch myself to? Every charity you know, event, every single um, time a, a race car was running at the track, you're, you're roaming um, the paddock just trying to get an opportunity, just trying to find that rich guy that could bankroll you or, or let you drive his car. And It's almost like a being a singer-songwriter where you have to go to all these like <laughs> yep. bars that are in basements and play, hoping that finally Someone the record label guy was there having a scotch and he got to hear you sing. Yep. It's almost just exactly. like that. Exactly. I remember um, auctioning off my family's vintage jukebox it was a raffle ticket where i was like literally getting local people to throw 500 bucks into a tank and and one of them was going to win my family's jukebox just to try and like finish the, the season in formula ford racing wow. in england so do you think that if you started today at the age you started then do you think you'd be able to do it with the money oh, no way it's it's i mean it's so much crazier what what kids are spending on a season of karting now is is what we were spending to do formula renault two liter slicks and wings full on um you know right at the cusp of of you know timmy raikkonen went from formula renault two liter into a formula one car and now that formula renault seat is you know probably half a million bucks where back then it was 150 grand so do you think there's um, any like do you think we're leaving potentially good drivers behind that will never be seen because the money is re like replaced the, the dream? Yeah. It's sad. Truly. Yeah. Barrier entry oh, yeah. is just way too high. Yeah. You find, you find some of the best drivers racing, you know, local karting Saturday night, short track driving. Um, it, it's motorsport in a nutshell is, is there's just so, so much between a, a racket or a, 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 a a bat and your talent it, with, with motorsport, there's, you know, so many costs and so much that goes into it. So that is the gnarly part. It really is, um, you know, the polo of, of sports where it's, it's not for anybody, but those that can find the funds. It's almost like you wish it was almost like how they, like a manager discovers a model 
and she's just really beautiful. And you just all of a sudden you bring her and you show her to like the the executives at whatever makeup company. You're like, oh my god, it's the next Kate Moss or whatever. And you bring her and you roll her out, and she's just amazing. It just seems like that doesn't. <laughs> Wait, you roll her out. <laughs> <laughs> Some of your analogies, Chris. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. But you know what I'm saying? Like it would be so great to just like pick a driver out of like to go to these events and pick a driver out and just like bring him up and see what he can do versus buying a seat anyway so what was your uh yeah no it happens it happens like that but it's 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 just you know it's a needle in a haystack right 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 so what was your first experience with porsche not necessarily porsche the company but like your first kind of like oh this is what porsche is yeah i mean as a as a kid i i do you guys remember the a shark watch or freestyle it's kind of like a surf watch brand in the in the 80s um anyways I had a friend whose dad was, was the co-founder of the CEO and he drove what I remember was a G body Targa and that was a modern car, you know, mid eighties. And he would roll up the driveway. We'd be hanging out in the garage at eight or nine years old and he would roll up the driveway in that thing. And you'd get out in a freaking tank top and a pair of Oakley blades on. And it was just, you, you remember the sound of that car. You just remember the, the poppy bright color and, and it, and it was, it was cool. It was, it was so cal in, in the kind of that, that vibe of the top down. And, uh, I remember uh, I had a music executive, um, uh, a mother of a friend of mine and, and she drove a nine, six, four. And, uh, it was, I thought, I always thought that was cool. Kind of a business lady who rolled in the, in a nine sixty four. And so for me, it was, it was, there were cars around it, not a lot, but, um, I always remembered, um, the parents that, that had them. And then my first time driving when I was 15, I had my permit. We were racing in Illinois and one of my teammates, um, his dad had a, a three, two, I think it was a three, two Carrera. And he let me drive it back to the hotel and I couldn't shift the thing. I mean, I could, I could shift a, a normal box, but whatever, I must've been a, a, an old nine fifteen or something. But yeah. I remember thinking, man, I got to figure out how to drive these things. <laughs> it's like a wooden spoon in a coffee can at sometimes it's, it's, it's sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes it can be a little difficult. You remember shifting my dog leg nine Oh one trans right when I got it. I remember trying to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, what was your first experience with like modern Porsche where it was like, like a Boxster or a Carrera or something like that? The like, water, the water cool stuff. Yeah, um, I remember living in the UK probably 2000, 2001, and, and my roommate, Marino Frankie, sorry, his little brother, landed a, a contract with Porsche Great Britain, and he got a company car, and he brought this gray Boxster home. And I remember sitting in the seat and, and thinking this, the driving, the seating position felt like a race car. It felt like a go-kart. It didn't feel like any car I'd ever sat in, and I don't think he let me drive it he was literally petting it all night but um <laughs> the, the car the, uh, <laughs> yeah both um but the uh the that, that experience and then i think the first modern car i drove was a cup car literally trying out for porsche's junior team i jumped in wow. a 996 cup car and uh, i don't believe i had driven anything on the road until i jumped into that car Tell us a little bit about that experience. <laughs> that has to be quite the introduction to, uh, you know, the modern Porsche. Yeah, it was. I, I, I didn't have much experience. I guess I had some BMW. Um, I drove the GTR, the V8 BMW um, that Tom Milner was running in the America Le Mans series at that time. I had done some testing in that car and I was slated to race it. But that thing was different because it had a heel and box in it and it was a full on Williams F1 software. So when I jumped in a, um, a nine, nine six, I was surprised it was, um, 
easy to drive, um, you know, had a, had a real lack of role and, and did everything I asked it to do. So it was, it wasn't like getting into people talk about getting in a tin top or a, or a, a full on saloon car and how heavy and how much role it is, but coming out of a, a, a sort of a monocoque slicks and wings formula car and jumping into that, it wasn't bad at all, but it was an H pattern synchro box and it was an analog, um, you know, dash with, with a normal RPM gauge. And so, um, I, I tested it at Leipzig um, in Germany, former East Germany, where Porsche had their new experience center. And uh, it was wild. It was a total immer- full immersion day of, of Jörg Bergmeister was set out to kind of rattle my cage in another car behind me. And, you know, there were factory drivers all over Roland Kuzma, one of the famed engineers at Porsche, was running the car that day. And it was probably better that I didn't know who was around me. Cause I probably, I probably would have been pretty overwhelmed. So do you, do you like get I, out I, of the car in the pits and there's a bunch of dudes in lab coats with clipboards, just looking at you and writing basically. and you're like, what are you yeah, writing? Basically. Yeah. Just staring, staring and nodding. Yeah. Sometimes yes. Sometimes no, but yeah. not a lot of words. Never <laughs> cracking a smile, here. poker face. Yeah. <laughs> it, it really was like that. I mean, walking through the gates at Leipzig, it was literally like boarding a spaceship you know, I'm coming from living, uh, renting a room in a 12th century nun's house in the middle of nowhere in England. And all of a sudden I'm in Germany and it, it was like to the, the stormtroopers music. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was, it was pretty, pretty dramatic actually. So that was kind of like, was that the turning point with you and Porsche right there? I think so. Um, definitely was my day um, to put it on the line and, and I delivered. I had just come out of a, a Red Bull Formula One test um, a, a few weeks before and I went into that test a little overconfident and a little complacent. I thought I had it in the bag and, and I didn't and uh, it kind of hit the door hit me in the face. So I came to Porsche to the test kind of thinking this is my last shot at motorsports and I, I definitely had the bit between my teeth. So that was that was the turning point for sure. I had had a few introduction introductions to Porsche through Danny Sullivan and some of my mentors coming up. But yeah, that that talk about when you when you get um, you know preparation meets opportunity. That was the day that if if I would have flopped it or thrown it into the barrier, there was no reset button. That's wow. That's heavy, man. Um, so tell me about being a young driver in IMSA because that's kind of what you raced with Porsche and IMSA. What was that like, and what did it mean to your career? IMSA um, in, in North America, you know, I, I grew up watching IMSA, ESPN Speed World, and I'm sure you guys, you, know, you turn on the TV and um, it's Price Cobb and, and uh, Davy Jones and, and Chip Robinson. And so, yeah, you know, for me coming into IMSA, I was returning from living six years in Europe, um, kind of out of high school and, and came back to the U.S. Uh, with a contract from Porsche and and got thrown into what was the America Le Mans series or or IMSA and uh, I was it was an eye eye opening experience. You know, are you, you considered a factory it. driver at this time? Is are you considered? Yeah. Okay. I guess actually actually the first race I did was the end of 2003 Petit Le Mans at Road Atlanta. I was still a, a junior team member, which kind of a you know Porsche had their UPS sponsored farm league where you you had two drivers per year who had kind of a uh, a triple a ball opportunity to prove themselves. And I was just coming out of my first season. I had never done any endurance racing and, and sort of got thrown in the deep end at IMSA. And, you know, the, the first thing I remember was turning in, in practice in a, in an Audi R8 prototype, just passing you like a, like a crotch rocket blows through traffic on the freeway <laughs> and you don't see him coming. And you're like, Holy shit. What was that? Yeah. And, and mentally it was, 
it was like you went into overload and, and, you know, the hourglass came up on the screen and, and your mind was just totally rattled. And then you tried to just pull yourself together while you're navigating through the next few corners and try to get your rhythm back. And then you find your rhythm, um, into the race, you go into a 10 hour race into the night and, and uh, you didn't screw it up. And, and then, yeah, that's, that was kind of my first entry point into IMSA and, and was able to get a contract and move home from Europe. And, uh, you know, I, I was racing for TRG my first year as a, a Porsche factory driver. That was 2004. So, there's a lot of weight that comes with being a factor driver with Porsche. Is it, is it fairly stressful? How does it change how you've approached things? Ah, you know, in the beginning, you're, you, you sort of naivety is, is your best friend because you <laughs> don't realize what you're carrying on your shoulders as, as a brand. And you don't realize just how big the following is of, of Porsche in, in North America. Um, and, and quickly, that became apparent to me and, and it was amazing. I loved it. Um, and I didn't feel the pressure that first year. I'm trying to think, I think the first time I really felt the pressure was, um, a few years into my contract, um, racing for Roger Penske on, on a factory program. When you get into a factory program, this was the DHL, um, spider, which was a open top prototype. And, uh, when, when all of a sudden when you have board funded money behind a racing program um, and, and everybody on Monday morning wants to know how we did, you know, at the, at the, at the head operation, yeah. that's pressure. That's when tenths of a second count and, and a spin or, or a, a last lap missed opportunity to pass somebody, you feel the weight of the company on your shoulders. And, and they say pressure comes from within, but I, I tend to disagree when you're on a, <laughs> a on a twenty million dollar race team and uh, Roger Penske's on the radio with you. So, it uh, certainly has been a journey, but um, I would say I'm kind of back to my shoulders are down and and I'm I'm enjoying my racing these days. You know, sixteen years in with the company and I know my place. I'm not twenty three. I'm not the fastest guy on the on the team, but you know when when I have to put it put it down and and qualify the car or finish the race like I did a couple weeks ago at the Sebring twelve hour. I still know I have it. I still know I can take it to uh, any any age or, or no matter how big their biceps are because there's a lot of this is, is science and it's experience. But, you know, there'll be a day. I've, I've, I'm 37 years old and I've had a 16-year, a um, you know, sort of I've been alone on the team as the only North American driver. And, and I've tried to sort of help scout um, some more um, drivers from this country. But it's not easy. It, you, they really, Porsche looks for somebody who's going to fit their discipline on and off the track. And I think right. my unfair advantage with the company was that I had spent so many years racing and living abroad by myself. Right. Right. So tell us a little bit about your time with formula Ford. Cause were you look, were you driving with the formula Ford thing to try to get into like formula three, formula one and t- that type of thing? Yeah. Formula Ford was, you know, kind of the gateway drug. It was the entry point. Um, it was affordable, no wings, tires were cheap. Uh, racing was close. You could slipstream and run really close because is basically a canoe with a 1800 uh, cc engine strapped to the back <laughs> of it, and uh, you, you really learned how to slide a car, um, how to how to race uh, with with strategy to be kind of second place coming into the last lap and slipstream by for the win. Um, they were dangerous. I mean, I still own the car that I raced, and uh, I bought it back after it raced a few years, and no one wanted it. But anyways, you're I look at that car today, and you're sitting in 
sort of a, a birdcage of, of metal bars and, uh, yeah, completely exposed wheels. And the things we did at 140 miles an hour when you're 18 and you're scared of nothing, it's, it's kind of insane to think about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so is that with the Red Bull thing that you mentioned before? Is that what the leap was from Formula Ford? Was it going into the Red Bull thing? Was that the leap? Yeah, basically, I had one year between um, a couple seasons in Formula Ford and and that Red Bull um, opportunity in a in a Formula Three car. Um, I had done one year in Formula Renault, um, and uh, my teammate in the beginning of the year was a, a young kid from um, you know not too far south of where I was living in in Great Britain, and he was definitely fast and everybody knew he had a mercedes emblem on his race suit and uh his last name was hamilton and, and <laughs> he was he was unreal um even at at uh, he was probably 16 17 at that time and we, we neither one of us had a ton of money even though he had already signed with mclaren and we used to share a hotel room because we were on the same team and you know he's one of those kids that's super nice and we just lay lay in bed and watching tv and he's throwing a, a tennis ball against the wall and and just you know just super talented kid um how but, is how is yeah. someone like lewis hamilton that made it different what does he have that you don't that you didn't what what <laughs> what exactly is the the intangible there uh i mean nothing was gonna stop that guy um he he was that good from very very young um he was marketable and and he but he could do it in the in the car he was yeah just that gift that he 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 worked hard but he was just a talented you know whether it was playing basketball or or you know drinking and singing karaoke that that guy was just uh, uber talented he was going to be the best karaoke singer there ever was <laughs> the, the world champion karaoke singer yeah it was like what the what the hell can this kid not do and and he was he was so young he probably didn't even realize you know what what it was a pretty pretty humble guy um so around this time you ended up calling hurley hayward for advice um hayward for advice what what, what was that about uh, that was a couple of years into my Porsche career. I was sort of just looking for um, direction on on how an American could survive in in a company um, that was full of European drivers and European culture. Um, what what did it take to navigate um, you know that that aspect? Because even two or three years into a, a, a contract, you're not thinking, oh, I'm set. I've got I've got the prize." Uh, role with Porsche, um, you, you're fighting for your job every single weekend. And uh, yeah, I just I ended up at, next to him at dinner at, at an event um, in Jacksonville, and he was he was pretty short with his words and, and very direct. <laughs> but uh, you know, he, he his advice was right. He, he basically just said, "Drive your ass off and keep your mouth shut." It was just like, <laughs> "Shut up and drive. Don't don't sit there and be be the the guy who's trying to cover up his lack of pace with." insane feedback about the car or critical feedback about the team. It was just like, don't be the ugly American. Yeah. I feel like some of the formula one drivers that I watch on TV could probably take some of that advice from what I can, from what I, at least from what I can see on the, on the footage. So driving for Porsche, you get to drive a ton of the vintage stuff. Um, and you recently did the break in, uh, miles on a freshly restored 962. What does driving that, um, vintage air cooled race car stuff mean to you? Yeah, it's a completely different, uh, role and it's a completely different sensation. It's so much about visceral and 
uh, it's dangerous. It's all analog. Um, you know, you, you roll into the throttle and you're sort of tentative. You don't know if it's going to spool up and, and just shoot you sideways. Um, you know, the things just, the, the wastegates are popping. They're, they're spitting flames. It's, it's like watching a, a YouTube video, but you're behind the seat of a, you know, $5 million race car. And, uh, that, those days are, are, probably my most cherished um of my career is is strapping into something completely new uh, a kind of car that you you've only seen pictures of or or just romanticized about but um those are those are few and far between um but when they come uh, up as opportunities um i'm always chomping at the bit and you, you get complacent you know you strap into a brand new rsr and and roll out of the pits and it's like all right yeah it's a it's a a, a modern race car it does everything that you tell it to do but when you when you get into a 917 and they close the hatch you, you think to yourself first of all this is dangerous your feet are out in front of the the axle and <laughs> and uh, you're sitting on two you know fuel tanks um but then you know the engine comes on on the suit's power band and you kind of forget about all that and and you it's like watching watching a a, a Steve McQueen movie or something it's pretty nuts. <laughs> Have you ever been around the original driver for the car while you've been driving the car and kind of talked to them about it and got some advice on how to drive them and stuff like that? Yeah, um this year at Rensport well, last year at Rensport, September of 2018, um, I was able to, uh, oh, I was invited to drive a couple of cars for Bruce Canepa in the 917 exhibition class and um, jumping into those cars. First of all, when Bruce, you, you see Bruce Canepa at the Monterey Historics and that's the truck that has all the, it's the candy store. It has all the best cars of all different eras. You know, it's got the, they've got the best trucks and the mechanics that just have that race face on them and, and you stand out there I've, for 20 years, I've stood outside of his trucks and, and wondered about those cars. What it'd be like to get in one of them. They're all pristine. And so that call finally came, um, and, uh, it jumped into a uh, nine seventeen ten and then a nine seventeen thirty. But oh my God. to your question, you know, George Fulmer was out on the track and Harley Haywood was out on the track and those guys in their seventies can still hustle a car it was it was unreal to be sort of mixing it up we weren't racing it was more exhibition but they weren't out there putting around waving at the fans i mean you could <laughs> tell that they they got a shot of adrenaline and and they were putting those cars on edge and it's kind of amazing to see that they don't forget how to drive those cars they don't forget what the rpm range is or the braking points it's, it's like just just crazy intuitive science it's in great well think of the think of back in the day the stress that it must have been and the, the pressure you felt now imagine feeling with cars that are kind of like pretty wild i think that kind of gets imprinted on you pretty hard yeah i think that and the in the, the the factor that someone when you roll up to the grid someone might not be coming back um yeah. or, or someone yeah. might get pretty banged up so it was a certainly those those eras of can-am and uh you know racing at Le Mans in, in group c cars was a pretty crazy time speaking of Le Mans, um you're looking to compete in your 16th season um why do you keep going back <laughs> i mean what is it about Le Mans that that makes you want to be there uh, it's, uh i mean it's the pinnacle of sports car racing it is the super bowl and um i just i just always wanted to compete in that race uh, I was lucky enough to, to live in the city of Le Mans, um, studying and, and racing, coming up through the Formula Car ranks. And that's the first time I was exposed to that event. And I have to admit, I didn't know the, the real magnitude of, of 250,000 people and 
um, just how big of a of an international race it is. And people talk when they come back from that race, they talk about it just as a bucket list um, event that that they just want to continue to go back to. And and taking part in that race, there's something where I would say it's, it probably has the energy and the excitement of, of the rest of the 20 races combined. Um, and, and it's, it's prestigious. It's historic. I think it's the oldest race in, in the world. And, you know, it's the one of, I think a few years ago, uh, it was national geographic rated as one of the top three sporting events in, in all of the world. So it's definitely a, a full week of just a, an incredible, um, event and, and driving that track. I mean, it's, it's all public streets and such long moles on straightaway is so fast that the sheer pace of that track is still like nothing else um, anywhere in the world. And uh, yeah, it's, it's an incredible, it's an incredible place. You know, one of the stories I was told about the Molson Strait is that there's a cafe there and, or like a little restaurant that's right on the Strait. And all the women back in the day, when the race car drivers would drive by, they'd run out there and lift their shirts up <laughs> for all the race car drivers. This is Dick Barber told me the story and they were racing and he would always try to look. <laughs> yeah. But I, I guess it, at, at I've looked. <laughs> so so you're, you're telling me hour. they still do this? <laughs> no, unfortunately, I don't. I still haven't seen it, but uh, I keep looking. Sixteen years, and I'm still hoping. But yeah. um, how about no, Chris true. and I will come out here this summer and we'll flash you. Yeah, we'll make it. We'll make it happen. <laughs> nah, nah, I, I, I'm, I, I'll be. I'll be looking at it. It's one of those deals. Where, yeah, it's. it's they just block off the the streets. I mean, there's an Audi dealership on the back straightaway of on and, and they just put barriers up in front of the dealership when practice starts. And then at the end of practice at midnight, they pull them down. And the next morning, the Audi dealership's back open again. It's it's that that crazy. Yeah, it's wow. it's gotten gotten pretty serious. Do you think it's harder now or 30, 40 years ago? I mean, there's different things that make racing harder now than it was. But you know, what arrow do you think you'd like to be in if you could pick? Um, good question. I would say even in, in the decade and a half that I've been there, it's completely changed. Um, when I started racing there, you had, you had to get the car across the, the line and you were probably going to be, if you didn't have any major issues or driver blunders, you were going to be on the podium. Um, now that might be a 10th place finish. So the competition has gone crazy, crazy up and, and the reliability of the cars means that you can drive them at 10 tenths for 24 hours. So mentally and physically, it's a lot tougher because you're just pushing qualifying laps. I think I've done somewhere around 12 hours of driving and the race is my maximum. And uh, in that time, I mean, you you are baked because you're just mentally and physically repeating. It's like, you know, going and having a normal um, sporting event on the weekend, but playing, you know, a back-to-back event for eight, eight events in a row. It's just nothing the mind or the body is, is used to. So that part of it, I think is, is more difficult, but back in the day, you know, it was two drivers instead of three, the speeds were just as high. You didn't have the technology. Um, so I think it was just different. I don't think one was more difficult. It was just a different science. Right. Right. So, um, would I have to ask then, would you want to take that, that nine seventeen that you were in earlier out on that 24 hours back in the day? If it was well prepared, yeah, uh, and proven, yeah. But I think there were times where the aerodynamics department was sort of eyeballing things and right, and, the early cars. <laughs> yeah, try this out. Tell, tell us, 
tell us if, uh, <laughs> if, if the car takes off or not. So <laughs> yeah. there was certainly some times, you know, there was no CFD, there was no, you know, real wind tunnel or, or shaker rig. So I think I'm, I'm grateful for that side of, of my generation of motorsports, but driving one of those cars, I think would be incredible. And I think that the application for the driver was much different. You went out and you, you, you worked your way up and, and you kind of got into the groove. And I don't really think that those cars were ever right at 10 tenths for, for more than a lap or two, mm. um, because they wouldn't last and they were dangerous. It was, it was easy to, to get it wrong. So I think it was, it was more self-preservation and consistency and, and, bringing the thing across the line and not wrecking the gearbox. I think as a driver, if you think back to the late sixties, you really had to be trusted that you were going to preserve the car and not only worry about lap times. And that, that was a big part of it back then is, is who was going to use their brain and, and be trusted where now when the thing comes off the jacks and you roll out of the pitch, you come off the pit lane limiter and you drive that thing as digitally as you can. And you just rag it every curb Every shift is red line. Every break from from out of the pitch, you have tire warmers, so you just have to be absolutely on the edge the first time you go through uh, the Dunlop chicane. Right. Wow. Well, plus, back in the day, the Mulsanne straight was actually straight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would have been really intense. Do you think it's possible for the legends of and drivers of modern times, someone like like you or Fernando Alonso or whatever, um, are they going to live up to the stature of some of the legends of the past? Do you think that's possible? That's a good question. I, I think so. Um, I think that the legends are the legends. I think that somebody who, like Fernando, who's gone through a bunch of dis- disciplines and shown how quickly he can get up to pace and challenge guys that have been driving that Toyota for, you know, five, six years or jump into the Indianapolis 500 first time, never seen the place. Um, those, those guys are going to write records and, and definitely hold their position. Um, there's, there's other parts of it that maybe won't be comparable um but yeah all in all i think that that the guys that are doing it in this day and age are are certainly as respectable as any 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 era what are your thoughts on the inevitable hybridization and electrification of racing does a how do you feel about that it's interesting um i think it's it's something that's coming and and no one can deny that i think that just like motorsport has has funded evolution and, and, you know, reliability and science in street cars and that track to street justification of all the money that's spent. I remember reading a story from Dr. Ulrich, who was head of the motorsport program at Audi. And he said, you know, Audi justifies motorsport and the spend and the cost um, from a, a technology and a marketing standpoint. But when he says, when you think about it, engineers are not willing to do what they do in a normal nine to five day job. But when they're in motorsport, the level of competition and the love for racing, it pushes them to work way later than they need to and to, to dig way deeper than they ever would. And he says the company can't deny what they're learning in the science and research of motorsport. And I really believe that that wasn't a PR spin and that is where I think electrification and hybrid technology and motorsport it's going that direction because they want to learn and they want to make these batteries smaller and they want to, they want to uh, evolve. And I remember being involved in the first hybrid GT car, the, the GT three R hybrid where we had a flywheel um, storage of energy in the passenger seat. And then we would discharge that energy um, in a front wheel drive system with a combustion engine in the rear. And that the whole science of just getting the ECU 
um, to communicate with the hybrid management system. It's just incredible to watch these engineers working through that and being a driver and coming back and saying, yeah, one wheel is working and the other wheel isn't. And here's what I think it is. And then you see those same guys working on the 918 project and the light bulb goes off. It's, all right. Motorsport isn't just stickers on the side of race cars. It really mm-hmm. is um, development. And so, yeah, with batteries and, and electrification and, and alternative fuels, it's, it's part of motorsport. It has to be part of motorsport to keep motorsport sustainable and, and to justify the spend. Yeah, as long as the racing is good, I think it's okay. <laughs> you know, as long as the racing is competitive and it's and it's interesting, I think I think we'll be. We'll I just want to have like I still want to see the flames on upshift somehow on an electric car. <laughs> you just, you just want right? to put like a little propane tank in the trunk or something? <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean the, the racing fan in, in me is not excited by it, but I think that will change. Um, I definitely, I grew up where you, you, your eyes were burning from methanol and, uh, uh there's you, dirt you in your hair. Backfires. You know, I can't, I don't have any hearing in my late thirties. I mean, that type of stuff is, is definitely what I grew up on similar to you guys, but uh, the future generations aren't going to know the difference when everything's electric out in front of their street and they go watch racing and it's quiet. Every, everything's going to be that way, but hopefully vintage cars and vintage racing and vintage drivers will be that much grittier and, and, and cooler to be around. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So, um, what is Luftgekult? Am I, am I pronouncing that right? Is that, is that correct? I like a B minus. Luftgekult. What do we got? Is that better? Luftgekult. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Right. So, what does it mean? It means air-cooled, and uh, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, when when we were playing with a name for our first sort of pop-up car show at a at a coffee shop on a Sunday morning, um, you know, Howie, that that was a longtime friend of mine. He was he's not from the Porsche world or from the classic car world, and he said, "Give me give me some names that you want to call this thing." And I just started started messing around with with Germanism in words. And I remember logos uh, that I had seen with super German names and beer, beer garden names and such. But um, it was just a description of, of Porsche nerds talking about a certain era of car from, from 48 to 98 um, sure. and everything in between. Um, so how did you, how did you get to, to like picking a, a location? Cause you know, the lumber yard was cool. How did, like, how do you pick something like that? Yeah, it's it's sort of just in your travels. You're inspired by things you see and, and brands. And I remember seeing Deus Ex Machina was a, a brand, and it was sort of an intersection of surfboards, uh, fixie bikes, and cafe racer motorcycles. And it was this kind of cool surf skate snow meets Aussie laid back guys. I had seen it um, in in Melbourne when I was racing V8 supercars over there. And then um, there was a florist. Uh, that I had always seen as a kid on the corner of Venice and, and uh, Lincoln in Venice. And I saw on the sign, it was like a marquee sign on this old florist on the corner, this main corner in West LA. And it said, coming soon, Deus Ex Machina. And I thought to myself, no freaking way. Huh. These guys are coming to LA. So it, fast forward a couple of years, it was a cool place to hang out. It was a coffee bar. There was, you know, always, you know, young progressive people in there kind of working their day job and uh, hanging out, taking up space and just great, great spirit, great vibes, uh, good coffee, nice motorcycles, good looking people. And uh, so I, uh, I just thought what a, what a place to throw a bunch of Porsches around uh, this architecture and this energy. And uh, we pitched the GM Julian, who was just a really laid back and and typical Aussie LA based Aussie. And he was kind of like, yeah, mate, what do you need from me? Like, no problem. Let's do it. 
and that was uh, kind of the end of 2013 when we were scheming on on an event, and so we popped that up, and it was really just um, to tell a story of this new hobby that I was all about, which was I had a three, two career and I was driving it looking to, to meet other people and to learn about, uh, Porsche's, you know, history. And, uh, I just wanted to tell the story to people who weren't into, uh, air cooled, who weren't into vintage cars. And so it was really just, how could I walk someone around a, a parking lot and, and explain the whole generation of air cooled Porsches in, in 10 minutes. And so that was kind of where I curated a, a collection of cars from and uh, the rest is history. So is that what you call kind of the storyline cars? Is that kind of where that comes from? Yeah. Um, I think that's exactly what it is. It's, it's not the best cars. It's not the most valuable cars. It's, it's showing a variety, um, of, of the owner or the car story and, and trying to, just let people understand the diversity of, of what is a survivor, what is patina, what is a ratty piece of crap, you know, right. what is an outlaw, sure, et cetera. Sure. Um, so yeah, all those different genres and, and just, you know, I guess getting rid of the elitist stigma of uh, straw hats and, and flowing grass. <laughs> um, I, I think it's, it's more just like people who drive their cars, who work on their cars uh, who want to check out uh, a Le Mans winning 917, but they also want to see, you know, what a, a, a 285 CN36 looks like on a 15-inch <laughs> wheel. So, right, um, right. yeah, it's, uh, it's fun. So uh, is there any way for me to trick you into telling us where it is this year <laughs> yet? <laughs> it's in Los Angeles. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a that, pretty... That part of it is, is, is fun for us. Um, it is the the hell. It is the nightmare of, of this brand because you really have to reinvent yourself every yeah. single show. Um, you're you're learning a new city, a new host, um, all the intricacies of in and out and and code and health and safety and all that crap. But it's a nightmare. Um, I, I, I know it, man. <laughs> yeah, I understand why people do pop up car shows and they just say, "Let's meet in this parking lot and let's go go have lunch and not have to." to pull stages apart and, and literally pop up an auto show for four or five hours. But yeah, we move it around every year. And uh, this year uh, I, I like our chances of, of living up to the hype of keeping this thing going. What we want to do is stay urban. We want to stay different. We want to be reachable. We, we, it's no sense going out to the middle of nowhere. And, okay. And so urban, right. reachable, different <laughs> Los Angeles. All right. I got it. I think I'm going to make, make some guesses. Chris and I need to know where to book our stay. So that's why we're trying. <laughs> downtown north hollywood that type of area we're not really on the west side this year so okay all right if that's you're, a, that's if you're between lax if you're between lax burbank and fountain valley you're doing well right. no you'll you'll know you'll know saturday um it, you've seen it on tv before or parts of it on tv before and uh yeah, it's uh, it's one of those deals. We gotta, we gotta somehow we gotta keep a little bit of. of no, I, I love it. I love it. It's excellent. It's great. It's great. Well, dude, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been a lot of fun, and um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I told you I talk a lot, but uh, no, I love it. Thanks for having me on, and uh, appreciate talking a little racing and a little air cooled. And uh, we'll be we'll be listening to future shows, and uh, hopefully we'll see you May eleventh. Yeah, we'll awesome. be there. Thanks, Take care, man. man. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. That was awesome i uh that was very cool basically going from selling your parents jukebox to world yeah, champion i know it was uh, i can't thank him enough for coming on the podcast i'm really excited to drive out for lyft i know that i always rail about making sure you drive your car where i might ship it home just because of like 
time, right? Just the time off, not time off. This is all I do, but just like time away from the family. <laughs> yeah, so I no, might I understand ship that. the car home or drive both ways. I'm not I, sure. Exactly. I love how we were joking off air though. I was like, Oh, are you going to fly out or drive out? And you're like, well, see how I wrote an article that says, take, take the, the car. car. Yeah. I better drive. Yeah, that's for sure. So no. Um, awesome. Uh, thanks again to, to Pat Long. Yeah. Really, really appreciate it. All right. We've got some news with Joel Fetter coming on up. Now you're not here for this. We recorded I'm this not. yesterday. So it's just going to be, it's going to be, I'm excited to hear it. Yeah. So you'll be, yeah, you'll be like a brand new podcast to you. So, um, yeah, onto the news. All right, we're back. We've got Joel Fetter in studio here. We're going to be going over the news and he went and visited Volvo um, to talk about their safety campaign or whatever you want to call it. Welcome to uh, welcome to studio, Joel. What's going on, man? Good to be back. Yeah. So um, why don't you tell me a little bit about your trip to see Volvo? Yeah, I mean, I went to Sweden two weeks ago now and uh, was with the CEO and a bunch of executives and we were talking about the future and, <laughs> and, and your, st- your favorite stuff about nannies. Talking, and, can we rephrase that and say you're talking about the apocalypse? I This is the Chris Clewell apocalypse. The car apocalypse, yeah. as this, I would say. This is your version of the apocalypse, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So what was the what was the deal? Why are we being... Because so, they flew you over there just to talk about the future and safety and what they're yeah. doing, right? So, well, okay, back up. 2009, they said that by 20... Their vision for 2020 was to not have anyone get seriously injured or die in a Volvo. That was their goal in hasn't, 2009. Hasn't their goal always been kind of that? Yeah, but in 2009, this was their vision 2020. And this is like, we're going to have technology by 2020 to make this happen. That okay. was their dream. All right. And now... Now we're what a year away from 2020 and they're like everyone's like so what's up and all your cars are on new platforms and everything so is this going to happen so they invited all of us out why didn't they just say ah that was a long time ago <laughs> because then that would make you happy so <laughs> i'm glad so, that volvo's uh, marketing plan revolves around me I so like that. They, they invited us out they did not tell us what we were coming for other than a safety innovation and that was it and so we did not, I flew to Sweden and I didn't know what I was going to see. Okay. Uh, they did promise they'd crash, crash a car and show us how that happens. So yeah. that was cool. That, that was pretty cool. Uh, it was violent. Yeah. Like, was it just like, oh my God. So the typical car crash at NHTSA or the IHS or IHS does about 35, 40 miles an hour. Okay. They crashed it at 50. Wow. The building, into an, sh- the building into an shook. Immovable object, basically. Just, yeah, in a, in a just wall. dead stop. A d- dead stop. Like one, it went from zero, 50 to zero in like a millisecond. <laughs> I think I've seen that on Mythbusters, but that's about it. So yeah, what I got the video. I'll show you. It was, it what was happened to the car? Was it just demolished? Were just they, destroyed. Were the crash dummies dead? They survived. They lived. They lived. They lived. The, <laughs> they lived. It's like a Subaru commercial, commercial, but for higher end people. Yeah, there you go. Subarus for higher end people. So what is? What, what so, did you? How did you find out? What did they so, want you so there for? They, so basically, it was uh, apparently most crash test dummies and crash tests are simulated for the average male. They do have crash test women and they have crash test dummies for kids. But the average crash test and car is designed around saving the male life. <laughs> what? I, so, so, so where's the Me Too movement on I, this? I, well, that's what's coming. So the, the whole thing was. So that, this is, you're talking about the generalized test that like industry standard tests are designed yeah, around males. Yeah, not yeah, Volvo's, yeah. just in general. In general. Okay. So and Volvo's been doing all of this different research for the last however many years, right? Right. So basically they said, we're going to share this with everybody. And safety shouldn't be for for men only. Okay, and it's get- <laughs> I, I can't believe. Okay, yeah. And, and, and so basically, they they said we're going to share all our data with every automaker that wants it. Just how, because they invented the three point safety belt and they let everyone right. use it. Right? They could have charged people. And then they're going to share all their date crash test data on females, males, all this stuff with everyone in the industry. So they've, have they always been testing males, females, kids? 
So that's been something that they've always done. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's, it's basically like for everyone, like every safety should be standard for everyone. And to that, so that's, that, that was their initiative that they're showing everyone. And they had some fancy acronym for it and all this stuff, um, but I have to look it up, but that's not the point. What was interesting or far more interesting to you is that the next steps they're talking about, and that's going to be an in-car camera recording system. And it's going to be their speed where limiters. Is this, where's this data stored from this in-car? Who can access So this? this is the interesting part, right? So it's actually not connected live streaming data. So basically, it's supposedly one way. But it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. because. So here's how it works. They actually don't have a plan. It's going to be one or two and where they're going to be located and all that. They're still prototyping it. They're just coming in 2022 or 2021. Okay. But it's going to have an in-car camera. And basically, it's to there are three reasons the cars crash. Intoxication. <laughs> right. Distracted driving. Yep. And speeding. It actually wasn't speeding. But everybody says it's speeding. Uh, this is making it bad. Uh, anyway, so the, the in-car camera system is facing the driver. Okay. And basically, it's going to be able to read your retinas to see how fast your eyes are reacting if you're paying attention to the road. Okay. It's trying to decide if you're drunk, inebriated, high, or anything. If you're not paying attention... If there's an issue, right? What is it going to do if it detects an issue? That's just it. So the first step of intervention will be Volvo on call, calling the car to make sure everything's That's okay. That's the first step. That is the somebody first calling. Step. Why does it just like vibrate the steering wheel like Actually, a Mercedes my, So does. what I ask them is if I get in the car and I'm very clearly pissed drunk, why will the car let me drive? Right. Well, it's like, got to, it's got to test you first. They need a sample. I need a sample size of your of your ability to drive. What if you're here's the thing. Does it base off like your past driving? Does it go? OK, well, it's no, it's just instant right now. What I'm saying is, does it keep like, OK, Bob is always seems like he's drunk, but he's not. So, so that's just it. That was actually someone we were in the Q&A with the CEO. It, the big question was false positive. What happens if like I have slow eye movement and the car thinks I'm drunk, but I'm right. not drunk? Is right? that a thing? Slow eye movement? I don't know. I'm not, <laughs> maybe. But okay. so, so his response was, that's just it. We can't be doing this. We can't accuse you of being drunk. So right. that was kind of the answer of why we can't stop this car from driving, right? right. Like we can't tell you that you can't drive unless you have a breathalyzer. Otherwise a it's an interlock device. Right, exactly. So they're not going to do that. But if, so then my next question was, okay, so Vol on call calls you and says, sir, are you okay? And Chris is clearly pissed drunk, but Chris yeah, is like, yeah, I'm man. Fine. Yeah, man. exactly. And he's like, I can. so I said, so the, the, the person on call sees Chris is drunk or, or knows Chris is drunk. Cause you just heard him, right? Is she going to disable the car? Are they going to call the cops? Is my well, what question. if he just naturally sounds drunk? Well, what if you naturally have slow eye movement? Well, you can. I'm not sure about the eye movement thing, but if you naturally are so, kind but of. That was the, but that was the question is, is, is are you going to disable the car or are you going to call the cops? Which, in my opinion, if someone's clearly pissed drunk, you should call the cops. They're going to they're right. drunk well, drive. Here's the thing is if you're driving behind someone and they're driving a little bit erratically, you can't prove that they're drunk, but you can go, wow, that person should, is clearly, should be should what should get checked they should by get a checked cop. a cop right. should come by and check right. them if they're whether they're texting and driving or right. drunk or whatever right. this is almost like the same right. type of thing except so they're using, not gonna call the cops what are they gonna do nothing they're just gonna go hey you should stop if i say if the woman on the phone says chris are you drunk and you should no man i'm good to drive man they're not, supposedly they're not going to call the cops they're not going to shut I the car when down when i read stuff about this it was going to slow the car down no so that's the next step that has nothing to do with this so this if you don't respond to the oh. person on call if 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 you don't respond to the person on call you're unconscious. Something really is yeah, physically you have a wrong. Stroke or whatever. Then the car, then the car, which is this is not controlled by the operator. The car will then intervene 
and it will pull it will pull itself over and put its flashes on and put it in park. Okay. But that's not the operator controlling it. That's the, the first step. So basically, today's attention assist monitor systems that don't have cameras, right. they had the little coffee cup, right? Yeah. And they say, are you paying attention? You should, take a, you should take a break, right? Yeah. And the more advanced ones- I would ones, get that when I didn't need a break. I know. Well, it's based on time of like four hours of continuous driving. Okay. Which most people can do that for more than that. And then the today's more advanced systems in like an Audi or a VW, or not a VW, a Mercedes or a BMW, they will actually, if you don't have your hands on the wheel, whatever, and then they'll turn off those safety systems that let you drive- with assist systems, so like the ones that let you lightly touch the wheel. Yeah. If you take it off long enough, they'll shut the system down until you reset the car because they're like, you're clearly you're taking advantage of the system. Right. So it's like Super Cruise on Cadillac. It'll lock you out of the system. So <laughs> okay. so so that'll be the first step in the Volvos, right? It's like it's paying attention to whether you're trying to take advantage of the So what's crazy systems. to me is that you have all these different manufacturers doing what they think the safe thing is. Rather than have kind of like a like the NHTSA or whatever the transportation whatever they're called set guidelines them, yeah them set the guidelines that the manufacturers have to meet or exceed so here's what's so going to drive you crazy all these different things going on yep. but there's no all like, these how different does a buyer like go and be like uh they go to the buy a car and it's you, just this all over the fragmented place. as hell yeah it's totally fragmented well here's what's really going to get you though what's really going to get you is that okay so far I'm okay with this. Yeah, so, I'm okay but, with but here, the drunk but, thing. But, so, but 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 here's what's going to get you because, and this is the title, the article I wrote. This says Volvo CEO's safety comes first, even if it sounds like Big Brother. This came out of a roundtable I was with him, and basically the first thing the week before that was Volvo's limiting all their new cars to 112 miles an hour, which right. set you off totally. Yeah, right? I don't like that. Right. So, but the problem was, is what happens, Chris, if you drive through a school zone or a hospital zone, and today the speed limit is 35, and you say, "Screw it, I'm driving 60," right? And Just, you and, and hang on, and but it's not your life you're putting at risk. You're putting that little kid at risk, right? Right. The, the Volvo CEO is position on this is: Do you have the right to do that? Do you have the right to drive sixty miles an hour in a thirty mile an hour? Sketch? And hang on, we're not talking about an open highway in Montana. I'm talking about yeah. a school zone, hospital zone, like high risk area where you should not be speeding. What about, aren't the consequences for that absolutely dire? I mean, is this something that sure. we have like rampant school zone violations where people, yeah. I mean, it's going on all oh, the yeah. time where Ke kids are dying in school zones? No, this it's, can't it, be it, real. It's, it's not about kidding kid. It's that people are driving 45 and a 25 in, in a school zone. Yeah, really, but I think it's more important to look and risk. see what's actually happening. So his solution is the question of, you understand do you what I'm have saying? that no, right? If it's not happening, then why are we, why do we care? If someone's driving at 45 miles an hour through a school zone, but no kids are ever dying, Maybe the speed limit should be 45. It shouldn't just be like, oh, 20 miles an hour, just because everybody feels better. So hang on. This is only part one of part two. Part one is, do you have the right to do that? Or should your car lock you out of being able to go faster in that specific zone? Part two. Maybe there should just be no driving in school zones at all. Oh, you're going to like this then. The part two <laughs> of it was, and this is from him, just because the speed limit is 55, does it mean it's safe to drive 55 in the given conditions? That's right. Well, that's uh, that's the way that the law should be interpreted when you get pulled over. Should but be hang driving on, people to don't always interpret that way. So should you have dri been driving in that snowstorm? That's what, no, I should not have been. What if the car wouldn't let you? I would be furious. So hang on, what if the car wouldn't let you go over 25 because the car didn't think it was safe to go over 25 I, in that fear storm? I, very, I pretty much wasn't going over 25 <laughs> anyway. You're missing the point. So, okay, hang on. Different if, situation. If I'm alone, Let's say if, that, that road is foggy. You can't see more than half a mile. You can't see more than 20 feet. And you want to go 50 miles an hour, which is your own right lift. It's your own risk, right? What if the car says, nah, you can't go so more what than you're 10? what you're describing is a world without consequences. Yeah. That's not a world I want to live in because there has to be consequences for our actions. There has to be action reaction. The, prob the problem is that the consequences are only on you. You could have run into a family in a minivan and kill them. 
Yeah, but the consequences of that is your life is over. So most but, people. But there's our two. And, Vol yeah. and so Volvo's question is, is it our responsibility to make sure you can't do that? So you're going to shift to a world with no consequences because of the one in like 10 million chance that you may kill a family. It's possible. I think it's more important to look at. If you look at how many deaths there are in the United States versus Norway, Sweden, Germany, whatever, there's far more here. It's very like by two thirds. That's because we have terrible driver training. That's correct. And, Awful driver and, training. And the consequences are far less punitive here than they are in Europe. If we had better driving driver training and uh, more punitive consequences, I don't think that a lot of this stuff would be necessary. I think step one is just the driver training. I mean, yeah. the driver training in this country is atrocious. It's awful. It it's should awful. be. It should be strict. It should be repetitive. There's no reason I should get my driver's license at 16 and never see any education for the rest of my life till I'm dead. I mean, it should I be. Mean, you should it, have to I renew your it. license. I mean, you should at least, at <laughs> least, have to take a written test because there's new laws that come out. There's new like my grandma. My bigger concern cannot do roundabouts. She away from, so she drives away from roundabouts and goes somewhere else. My biggest, my biggest concern legitimately is the young ones because I mean, dude, look, when I drove at 16, I was an asshole, right? I, I thought I could drive. Turns out I couldn't. No, 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 you had no idea. Oh dude, I could not drive. I thought I could, I could so, drive fast. So why not increase the driving age to like 20? I'm not, I, I think I see, I don't think that fixes it. I think it's a training issue, not an age issue. I think it's I don't a training know. issue. I think that the brain is fairly undeveloped in terms of understanding consequence and risk at that age. Well, I agree which with is you, but by they can be taught. Like, you can teach this. I think it, because, okay, hang on. If we, okay, let's say we increase the driving age to 20 right now, but nothing else changes. I don't think that solves the problem. We need so much better driver training. We need driver training that comes from Germany. We need that what comes in Sweden. Hell, we need what comes in China. Like, yeah. the driver training in these other countries that I just listed is so over the top compared to what we I have think here. What you're, the, the, one of the problems with this is you're looking at individual countries. You, if the way that you would look at that in the United States we is, are an individual country. No, we are a country. no, we're a federalist country. So we have different states. Right, right, right? Right, 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 so yeah. each state has their own laws that govern this type of stuff. Yeah. My wife grew up in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. She didn't have to parallel park for her test. Okay. She so, can't there, parallel park. so there you go. So you have different, different rules on what it takes to it's get terrible. licensed in each state. So maybe, we Maybe. as a country should have standardized testing and it should be legitimately better than what it is. I, I would agree with that. But even in the sure. European Union, I bet the Czech Republic and or Ukraine or whatever, their uh, fatality statistics are probably much higher than they are in Germany, even though they're of still, course. you know, they're still part of, well, Ukraine isn't, but. But they're uh, different countries. Yeah. But I mean, that's the way I'm looking at it here is like, let's say Minnesota, we have extremely extensive driver training. It's very safe to drive here. That might be something where people, oh, I should move to Minnesota because blah, blah, blah. So it's almost like you can be encouraged to have the better laws without making it a or federal system. Or some states system. say that your cars have to automate things. Chris, like I'm never sitting in that state, whatever. Well, yeah, you could do that, but then, um, other states are just going to follow suit because they have to, which is which totally leads into the other later topics of today. Which one? Oh yeah, Hell New yeah. York. All right, let's uh, uh, move on to uh, the story about BMW. They're actually saying that they're going to be running the V12 for a while. So they don't sell a lot of V12s in their in their cars. But here's the thing: they are they're selling as many of them as they can make. Let me read a little bit. Um, despite pressures on automakers to drop thirsty V12s from their lineups, as Mercedes Benz has done because they're lame, a BMW official has confirmed that the Bavarian automaker will continue to offer the engine configuration at least one of its products, the Seven Series flagship sedan. Um, basically, it's been tremendously popular with its flamboyantly wealthy clientele in Middle East and China. 
So that's right. And they basically said, since we revealed the car, we have been at maximum capacity for building the engines. They can't, they say they can't build enough of them. And I think that's, that kind of goes to tell where BMW's actual market is. Like the Chinese market for BMW well, is insane. Oh yeah, that's why the new X7 and the new Eight Series have crystal ship knobs because of China. It's not us. Oh, they're awful. Oh, so it's bad. It's so bad. It's so bad. It looks like a sh- you're grabbing you're grabbing a chandelier from oh, an old house so, every time you go. Dude, I used to own an E34 and five, and it's embarrassing what we've got today. Yeah. But 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 it's so yes, it has nothing to do with the U.S. People need to realize that China is now the actual most important car market in the world and that, like most people there still don't drive no they're it's crazy it's not a driver's country it's a chauffeur country like every car maker well, like one out of every nine people gets approved for a driver's license there i think it's actually is it worse than that yeah i think it's worse than that that's but, i pulled but, it out of my ass anyway but, but that's one of the countries with the high high driving test right that we were right. talking about but the v12 thing so first off they all make long wheelbase models so there's a three yep. series long wheelbase there's a a5 and an a4 long wheelbase there's an a6 long wheelbase there's for, a stretch for china only of china China only. Okay. And they sell enough of them to justify it because you're driven. You're not driving. So you want to be in the backseat. My point is, and is the that V12 is a status symbol. The German market is being pushed by China, which I don't really like. All of it is, though. Because Buick, t- Buick exists today the because of China. The taste is not good. Like, Buick you, exists today because of China. Uh, anyway, it's so up. I want to talk about some notable V12 engines that you can get yes. today. So um, I, I sometimes will go on Craigslist and I'll type uh, V12, <laughs> just like in the box. Two, two of these cars are a thing for me. So you go through the first okay. two. The second um, two so are totally on the, me. Uh, the 1995 Jaguar XJ12. Cool car. Which is, when you get inside, it's like burled walnut everywhere. Mm-hmm. Like every single thing Old that you school. Could, it could possibly be burled walnut, like the steering wheel, everything's all burled mm-hmm. walnut. They're long wheelbase car. They're, they're huge. They're under 15 grand. All these prices that I'm kind of quoting are like for a nice car. It's not like nice ish, nice. Well, nice ish car, right? Yes. Not like a collector grade, but like a driver grade, nice yep. car, not something that needs everything, which most of these cars do. When you look on Craigslist, they all need everything see but if they need nothing that day then two days later they're gonna need everything they'll they'll need something so you can get those for 15 grand um another is the bmw e38 750 il and also the 850 bmw came with a v12 as two uh as well and those are like 10 to 15 grand for a really nice one Um, but they only like 320 horsepower out of a v12 is like a heavy engine it was not the engine to get that car no no v8 was the engine to get the v8 was the engine to get but the prestige is the is the sure, v12 you get the, it's thing. got the 750 il badge on it oh and, yeah uh, our friend alex had the long wheelbase they're I pretty cool they, i mean did he the, try to lower that thing he did he slammed <sighs> it to the absolute so ground dumb. we took the suspension off at my house and it was I all rusty this. it was a nightmare it was awful he ruined that car ah, it's gone the thing was it didn't it was cheap it was I, like i'm not a stance thousand. guy i'm not a stance guy it's, it was several thousand dollars. You know, it was kind of like a last owner of the car type of thing. You're the last owner of the car. You Screw know, it. it's add into life. Screw it. Just do whatever you want. Um, other cars, the Mercedes-Benz S65 AMG, which is Dope. killer. Like Dope. That, that's the car that I imagine driving around. And my car, my C43 AMG, is with all the thugs in it following around the boss who's in the yes. S65 AMG. Yes. It's a twin turbo V12, yep. 600 horsepower. Yep. And they're like 20 grand. Yep. If you want to be a baller... That has this air is, suspension, by the way. Have you ever seen them, like Emola or anyone doing the bleeding? They call it the rodeo yeah. because when they have to bleed the system, it literally does each airbag and it rodeos the car around in a circle. They it's are awesome, killer. Yeah. I really, I mean, a nightmare, but a nightmare, total nightmare. total nightmare. Never buy one, but maybe drive one for a little. But bit. up next, but wait, there's more. Wait, but wait, there's more. Chris has bought an S65 AMG for five grand. He's flying to Florida to get one, and he's going to drive it home. Wait, what? You believe me, but that's not happening. 
I was gonna. I was saying, but wait, there's more because of the next car. <laughs> um, I love, love, yes. love this car. Yes. Oh yeah, it's not a V12. It's kind of a V12, but we'll just put it in that category. It's anyway. cooler than a V12. So, um, and we'll see if anybody was guessing. It's not a V12, but it's in the V12 category. If anybody's guessed, it's the Volkswagen Phaeton. You gotta say it the cool way, the Phaeton. 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 Um, this car is cool. So cool. Hands down. So over-engineered. I mean, you know about the factory and everything, right? Yeah. It was, it was, oh, my God. The factory was insanely clean and modern. It was a white glove assembly facility. That people, was all glass and bamboo flooring. For what kind of car? <laughs> for an A8 that had a Volkswagen badge on it. For a Volkswagen. A Volkswagen. So it had W12, not a V12. And basically, it was two VR6s slammed together. Yeah. Yeah. But the only problem was that they had Nicosil coated cylinders. There's so, so many issues with that. So when they would wear... You couldn't just like re-ring it and like run a hone so down. It. it was many just issues with that car. W8 was the same way, like the Passat yeah. W8. Yeah. Well, that no. was two four cylinders from Volkswagen stuff together too. Yeah, it's the same technology. And Have you ever it. looked at the trunk hinges on that car? They're they're like oh, the beefiest trunk God. hinges they're you've so ever seen. They're so engineered. They're of like laser cut amazingness. Yep, and they have like the double pane glass. Oh, they're 420 yeah. horsepower, naturally yeah. aspirated, no turbos or anything like that. They sound great. They look great. Have They've you got, heard of W8 straight pipes? No. Only on the internet, but not in, oh, not in real yeah. life. Oh they sound God. they sound pretty cool. So anyway, V12s are if you want to get a cheap V12, if you want to make a worst buy best none decision, of these. <laughs> buy none of these and and you'll be fine. So uh, next article is um, oh God, Tesla has been hacked, and we're back again to Tesla. Tesla has been hacked, as the as the everybody said on the internet, and I'm like, this doesn't really count as being hacked, I don't think. Really. So um, a prolific cybersecurity research firm says it has managed to make Tesla's self-driving feature veer off course by sticking small stickers on the road pavement. They're about the size of your fist and they're white. Um, the first attempt to confuse autopilot used bl bl uh, like blurring patches on the left lane line, which said the team is blah, blah, blah. It's uh, it's getting dark, so I'm having trouble reading this. It's difficult for an attacker to deploy some unobtrusive markings in the physical world to disable the lane recognition function of a moving Tesla vehicle. So they're just, what they did is they went and they just put lines on the ground that made it look like the lane moved. Right. That sounds That's like... That's not a hacking. No, it's not hacking. It's, no. What would that be called? Would that be freaking in some way? Like, what is what would that be called? Pranking? Well, it's not going to be... It's not much of a prank if you make someone drive into a median. So what is well, the car... Well, just drive Tesla... Hang on, just... Put your car on autopilot and just get in the back seat and wait for something to happen. I mean, yeah, that's that's yeah. basically it. Um, so the, Tesla basically said this is not a real world concern, given that a driver can easily override autopilot at any should, time should. by using the steering wheel or brakes and should be prepared to do so at all times. Correct. And they say that going, nobody does this. Correct. Nobody's paying attention. Because They're, they call it full self-driving on their freaking website. Yeah. Oh my God, I it's, can't even. Um, a Tesla representative told Business Insider that while Keen's findings weren't eligible for the company's bug bounty program, the company held the researchers' insights in high regard. We yeah, know great. it took an extraordinary amount of time, effort, and skill, and we look forward to reviewing the future reports from this group. I'm surprised nobody tried to do this before. Here's the thing, though. Like, this is the exterior factors they did, right? And you take the the Tesla or or any of the other Germans that 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 let you take your hands off the wheel for like twenty five seconds of time or five seconds of time or whatever it is, right? And you trick it by taping a Coke bottle or taping some kind of weight to the steering wheel so it thinks right. your hands on it. Yeah, you defeated the system. Like yeah. it's the same thing, only they're doing something on the road instead with it to trick the sensors instead of tricking the sensor in the in the steering wheel. I don't. It's not hacking. It's not hacking. But here's the deal: that is does sound dangerous. Like, are people yeah. going to go out there and start like putting? They're just going to take white spray paint and like draw a line i mean but we still have people throwing rocks off bridges that kill drivers like yeah. that just happened three times this last year like 
This this is pretty buzzworthy though that you can do this. Eh. Well, whatever. We'll see if anybody crashes other people's Tesla. So, in other <laughs> Elon Musk news, um, he combined he combined a Twitter joke, a year old meme, and auto tune into a surprise news. I can't believe this is like into a surprise new song called "Rip Harambe," which the Tesla CEO uploaded onto SoundCloud this weekend. This might be my finest work, the SpaceX box said of the track, which he posted on his fictitious Emoji Records SoundCloud page. Between tweets about the Tesla Semi, Emoji is a play on Emoji, a callback to a must joke from earlier in the weekend. I'm disappointed that my record label failed. So I'm going to play a little bit of it here for you. (laughs) Okay, I... No, we got to get to the verse. It's the best part. All right. So, uh, thoughs? I mean, do you like the song? Does it sound Hang on, I'll be real clear about something. That's not news, and we did not cover that on our site. No, <laughs> it certainly isn't. But uh, there are I, some sites that anytime he tweets like cover those news. This was not news. Um, I, like you, you're disappointed, right? I mean, you're disappointed. Oh, so disappointed. It, you know, dude. This, stop I think tweeting. He's, he's crazy. Stop rapping. This man Just is crazy. Freaking build some cars and hire some people that know what they're doing and listen to them. You're a freaking genius, and you. I get that, and it's true. But like, stop. Just stop. He Stop. can't. He won't. He, he can't. He, he can't. can't. He, won't. he won't. So, uh, you want to hear the song again? I can. Play. <laughs> no. For again. No. All right. So, no. tell me a little bit about. Um, you guys ran a story about uh, for Porsche. The future is going to be leasing. So, what's the story with Porsche and leasing and their business model that they're planning to do? Like every automaker, Porsche and every other Aston, Ford. Everyone's having problems with their limited edition cars being bought. Yeah. Well, Ford, and then Ford had a, a oh, ban John on Cena. Selling. A yeah. John Cena broke it. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone is buying these cars, and then immediately. Three months down the road, turning them and putting them at Bear Jackson, putting them at Sotheby's, putting them up for auction or just selling them, and they're turning them. You can buy a 911R. What was the retail on one of those? 190, 200? Yeah, I have was no it? idea. Something like that, right? Don't quote me. And then people were turning around selling for like 700 well, that's what grand. That's they did with the GT2 RS was like 300 grand. Exactly. They were like 700 and, grand. And Porsche is basically like enough. Well, here's so, part of the problem is that they said, hey, well, this is only part of the problem. Obviously, these people are doing it too, but they'd be like, yeah, the guy with the 918, he's got first crack at this. So they're all making it like only Porsche people are able to but buy the these But the problem is the guy with the 918 buys three of them. He keeps one and sells two. It's stupid. No. So, 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 but Aston Martin, Mercedes Benz, a lot of these high end, the LFA was one of the first. You basically are buying the car, but it's basically a lease or a loan and right. then you're basically giving the car back and then they're going to recondition it and then they might sell it and once two or three years is up the market might be different well they're place. just going to rebuy the lease or buy out the lease that's what Maybe. i would do you wait six months and buy the lease out but i guess there's like depends a, on the terms and conditions i guess there's a barrier to entry where it's just like an extra step that you'd have to go through to i mean to- yeah but so like for so like ford's solution with the ford gt was that you're gonna buy the car and you're forbidden from selling it for two years is and john cena did that and sold it and he got in some financial hard times or whatever, wrestling, yeah. I don't know. And so he, he, he did this whole saga that we covered for like last year. Yeah. Um, I try to ignore the, it because it uh, just seems ridiculous. It was a legal fight that yeah. Ford was suing him and then he turned around and sued them. Oh my God. Um, but basically, that Porsche doesn't want people flipping their cars for 911Rs for 800 grand anymore. I do appreciate that. I, I totally appreciate so that. Good for them. There's nothing about this that bothers me at all. Not at all. You know, if this is, if it's, if it's a barrier to speculators and all that stuff that yep. I hate. 
I'm. I mean, down. look, there, there's something to be said about supply and demand, right? But the problem is, is just because you can afford it today or you can get a loan on it today, doesn't mean you should go buy one and then turn around and flip it. Because there's there's some guy in Chris that just won the lottery that actually wants to buy one and keep it. <laughs> please, please, I wish that was me. <laughs> you have to actually play to win. That, um, that would not be a car I would buy if I won the that's lottery. That's not the point of this. Okay. What car do you think I would buy if I won the lottery tomorrow? Singer. No. I would buy a, that's a not a bad move, but <laughs> I think it would be a GT3 RS 4 liter, a 997. I'm a little surprised on that based on the fact that I picked Singer and you hate modern shit. Yeah, but I think that the, the RS 4 liter is one of the last displays of um, what Porsche is capable of without screwing everything up and making it hideous, ugly, and technologically overburdened. Doesn't that car have four-wheel steering? That I don't know. The 997? I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, so... Uh, it's got plenty of technology there. Yeah, well, I'm sure there is, but I, I just really want one of those. I've already got an old one. I don't need another old one. Um, so... Hang on. Singer's not an old car. <laughs> Singer's a new car. I, you know, I don't... They have Bluetooth. I could never... I don't think there's any part of me that would own a Singer. How come? I just, I'm not into it. I feel like it's too much. Would you own an RWB? Oh my God. No. Have you ever read my article about RWB? No. I'll have to, sh- I, I cannot stand it. It's would like, you, this- would you, hang on, would you, you, you'd buy a Safari, right? You buy a Keen. No, no. Really? I, I don't think I would, I would probably, if I was, depending you don't on how want much a Keen money 11, huh? Um, I guess it would be fun. You know, I, I could, I could do that to my car though. I could raise my car up and put some struts on it. So what do you do. want? I think that that's not a 911 GT3 that's new <laughs> for an old car. I think yeah. if, if I won like just ridiculous amount of money, sure. I would find some old vintage race car, like an old RSR, make it street legal and drive it and just that's so interesting, just drive the hell out of uh-huh. it on the roads, like find some old, you know, RSR 911R and just daily drive the thing. I would, or I would buy that stupid, you know, I'd find that, here's what I would do. I would find that stupid guy that just paid $85,000 for an M coupe BMW on bring a trailer. I would buy it from him and then drive it as much as I could to get the mileage. What about the 184 mile, 151,000, 1993 NSX that just sold today? That's a little different because the miles are almost zero. I guess it depends. Basically are zero. It could almost be like. I feel like there should be maybe one or two cars like that that are at the factory that are at museums. The rest of them just need to be driven. You know, what are we, who are we holding these cars? Who are we holding onto them for? I'm not arguing that. You know, the car is sitting there. It's like that art on the wall over there is meant to be, it's meant to sit there. It's meant to look at. It doesn't have a purpose other than that. If you can drive that, I'll be impressed. (laughs) You could probably in the snow, you could probably make something work. I'm just (laughs) saying that every car is designed. It's a machine. It's designed for a purpose. Just saying drive. So in that way, then the mileage thing, it's like, well, we have to save this. We have to save it. For who? For who? Why? Who are you saving it for? Who's going to drive it? You know, and it's... Or will it be a lot on the road? Will it be a lot on the road? Who knows? All right. Uh, last article. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this. We've talked about this a few times, but I wanted to go through the... Um, what really hit, grinds Chris's gears. Yeah, these, all these... Well, not all these bother me, but a few do. Here's a list of every car safety feature that the European Commission has slated to be required on all new cars... Sold in in the European Union starting in 2022. First, alcohol interlock installation facilitation. Cars, vans, trucks, buses. So they want to put a interlock in all cars. Actually, you skipped the first one. Oh, advanced emergency braking. (laughs) What does that mean? That, so that's What's advanced. That's it's uh, it's automatic emergency braking. Why is it advanced? Why isn't it just called emergency braking? Advanced. Probably because so emergency braking is different than automatic emergency braking with forward collision warnings. 
a okay. lot of new cars have this. I'm okay with this. Yeah, I'm it's totally a good safety innovation. Yep. Um, alcohol interlock installation facilitation, which is basically so you're if you have to breathe into a thing every That's time you start thing. your car that's, who's gonna do that well you're if you have to i guess everybody will but but i don't understand like that's the in the u.s we have those like hanging off your column like you know if if you get a dui and you have to have one installed in your car maybe there's gonna be like a little valve on the steering wheel where you have you to lean in, like put your mouth on the <laughs> steering wheel, steering wheel. <laughs> i don't know how they're gonna implement that um drowsiness and attention detection which I, is Volvo, what we were talking about a lot of, but, but you know, if you're going to have self-driving level three or anything, you should have a camera-based tension monitoring system. You should, period. So if you're, okay, I won't argue with that. Um, distraction recognition. So if you're That's going to be the camera texting, thing again. Yep. Um, event accident data recorder. So a lot of cars have these. They're black boxes. But what they're talking about is going to be like, like, um, like the Tesla one where they have all their cameras and they're recording the accident data. Right. So basically you're talking about taking what's currently existing today and just upping it like a black box, like a plane. Okay. You that's, can reconstruct an accident kind of thing. That's probably okay. Yeah, I totally mean, fine. It's, no big deal. It depends on who has access to it. My gut tells me it's to for insurance companies and for people to figure out who is the dumbass in the accident. As long as I get to say, yes, you can have access to this. Because well, it's, it's basically my data that I created, so I yeah, do have on. ownership you, of it. What happens if you were in the wrong? You don't want your insurance company to see you were in the wrong. I doesn't matter. Well, then the insurance company is going to make your rate go up anyway. Realistically, if you yeah, deny, you got to figure out. Who, yeah, but you got to figure out who is in the wrong because one insurance company does need to pay out to the other one. Well, most that's what this are is. Most states no fault states anyway. Not if you rear end. If you rear end here, you're at fault. In the, yeah, in Minnesota. I suppose. I don't know. I just don't. There's part anyway. of me that just doesn't like it. Um, emergency stop signal. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is. Is that that like blinky light? I don't know if that, that is. What, do you, have you seen that? Mm-hmm. Where you're driving around and someone touches the brakes and their brake lights flash and then say solid? Oh, so Tesla just came out with this over an over-the-air update. So so on Model 3, on, on the ones in Europe, if you lightly tap the brakes, they break. If you slam the brakes, it flashes and then it, it does it. Yeah, and that's, it's to I get your attention. I think that's what this is. It's kind of smart. Yeah. Full width frontal occupant protection crashed tested improved seatbelts. I'm fine with What's that. What's a full width frontal occupant protection? So hang on. Side note on this. Did you know today in the U.S. when people crash test, one of the crash tests a new car has to pass is people in a car that are unbelted don't die. Like that's a crash test. That's why cars weigh so much. Just so you know that. I kind of feel like if you crash, you're not wearing a seatbelt. You kind of deserve to get the consequence. Yeah. I mean, you should just wear your seatbelt. But I, 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 I agree with you. So a car maker should not be submitted to a crash test of unbelted dummies because that just makes you a dummy. <laughs> yes. But that's why cars weigh so much today. It's got to have all this crap in there for situations that shouldn't exist. Well, yeah. I mean, that's... Anyway, keep going. Sorry. Head impact zone enlargement for pedestrians and cyclists. I don't know what that is. Head impact zone enlargement. That's pro- So right now, that's why... So remember the, the 2007 series that had the weird front end that was high? Yeah. That was for pedestrian crash on uh, in the in Europe. That's why hoods are so high on a lot of these. It, a lot of the center of the hood, they collapse if you hit it. Like if you, So if you hit someone in the crosswalk, the yeah. center of the hood like kind of collapses a little. Yeah. Uh, that's what, they're they're okay. making it wider. Um, intelligent speed assistance, which we've talked about. Yep. Um, lane keeping assist. A lot of cars have it. Pole side impact, occupant protection. It's kind of like another airbag. Reversing camera or detection system. A lot of cars are required here. Yeah. And you have it. I think it's actually required here, isn't it? Yeah. yeah as of last be. year. As yeah. of last year. Tire pressure monitoring system. Most pr- cars have it. Vulnerable road user detection and warning on front and side of vehicle. That I don't know. What that I don't know what that is. means. Vul- vulnerable road user improved direct vision from driver's position. I don't know what that means either. That means. So these are all the different things that are that are coming. So um, just thought I'd keep you guys apprised of that. Uh, is there anything <laughs> else you want to talk, uh, talk about before we go? Um. 
always things we can talk about. Yeah. Well, I want to remind everybody to hop over on iTunes, leave us a five-star review. And uh, other than that, we'll Email talk. Email Chris, tell him how much Motor Authority news is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you coming in and head over to Motor Authority. Where can they find Motor Authority? We are on all the things, Instas and Twitters and Facebooks. All the things. All the things at Motor Authority. And then I'm at Joel Fetter. Yeah, right on. Thanks for coming in, man. We'll catch you later. We'll be back. Yep, bye-bye.